The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Victor Lambs. Hey, Victor. Hi, Dom. And Thomas Senorho. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Dom. And we uh, want to say welcome back to our special guest, Matt Clark. Hey, Matt. Hello, Dom. Uh, in case folks don't remember, Matt was on uh, with us uh, just about a year ago in our episode 195. Uh, Matt is a farmer, and uh, before we before we get into that, I want to have you introduce yourself again to the audience. Uh, I do want to remind folks that, about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Trek, and you should definitely check that out wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. So, Matt, again, welcome back, and could you remind the listeners a little bit about yourself and you know why we have you here uh, tonight? Um. I farm with my brother and now my son in northern Missouri. We have a row crop and and cattle farm, about three hundred head of cattle and fifteen hundred head or fifteen hundred acres of, of row crop. So fairly diversified, and you know it's a full time job. Great, great, yeah. And we want we, you know we love having you on because you know you're a tech geek as well as a farmer and uh, Catholic. And we want to t- talk a lot about, you know, especially about the, the ag-, ag tech. That's the term I've learned. You know, it's the, it's the new, it's a thing. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm on the inside now because I, I can use the, ter- the lingo. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're learning, we, you know, it was fascinating last time talking to you about, you know, the, the issues and the, and the opportunities but with farming and agriculture and technology and some of the ethical and moral and other, you know, uh, even philosophical aspects around all of that uh and we wanted to have you back it's the slow season obviously for <laughs> farmers i won't say you're you're not busy but uh, i mean there's always something to do on the farm i know but uh but you're not uh, busy out in the field so that's that's yeah. a good opportunity to get you in here we sur- we survived the cold snap of the last two weeks so. oh, <laughs> yes yes i saw i saw your pictures on our on our discord man that looked uh looked cold uh so I want to kind of dive right into it because we have some interesting uh, stories that we wanted to talk about some, you know, developments in the area of technology and agriculture. And uh, one of the things that you shared in our discord was this story about how John Deere, which is the big agricultural equipment manufacturer uh, and SpaceX have announced a, uh, a Starlink deal. And so I wanted to ask you about it. Why would this deal between SpaceX and John Deere be a big deal for you and other farmers? And what concerns would it bring up for you? Like, so, so why would it be, what, what benefit could it be, but what, what would concern you about it as well? Well, the, the reason this, the reason the deal happened was connectivity, the, the internet of things as it is, the, the John Deere GS3 Green Star, well, four and five now have connectivity and they're moving towards automation. 
and the automated automated tractors have to be in touch with the server and in touch with uh, your phone device, whatever you have with you. And they need low latency. They're using an LTE modem now, and that's fairly good. But there's places I can see four four cell towers from my house, and there's places where I don't have a cell signal. And so if if the tractor, the equipment can't stay in communication, it cannot function autonomously. And so you get out in big sky country, you get out, you get in Brazil and areas like that and less populated areas, and they don't have the cell towers and you just can't communicate. And so for this, that's, that's entirely what it's about. It's to keep okay. the tractors communicating with John Deere servers and in turn communicating with the owner operators and stuff like this, because if something goes wrong with the tractor out there, even, you know, you, you don't think five, five and a half to eight miles an hour is that fast out in the field. <laughs> you know, when you drive 60, it's pretty fast. If, if you can't send a shutdown signal to that tractor in less than a second, it, it's moving, you know, five to 12 feet every second. That's right. a lot of room for a bad day. Right. <laughs> that, that, and that, you know, I think about it, like when there's a lag in the amount of time it takes before I hit the switch for my light in my room, you know, and it's like, there's a, a, a two second lag. And it's like, Oh, what's good. Like there's that moment of panic just in that for the a light. But I can imagine if I had a, a, a massive, very expensive piece of equipment right. far away in a field, um, tearing up crops because it's gone rogue. Uh, I can imagine that that, that would be a problem. I, yeah. Tearing up crops could be a, a good, a good ending to something going bad there, you know, right. destroying equipment or losing equipment that, or even people. Um, you know, I've watched videos of these and, and the onboard controls are, are very quick to stop the machine. If it senses anything, you know, it's got, if I remember correctly, it's got six optical or six or eight optical stereo optical sensors around it. Plus, mm. you know, all the other sensors. It's, it's very, it's very smart. It has very good sensors, but it also needs, needs to be in communication. The other side to this, and, you know, you could probably use Bluetooth or some other sort of local, but if you're running multiple pieces of machinery in a field, even with a human operator, the the newest the newest uh, controls will talk to each other. So if I'm a, if I'm in a planner and somebody else is in a planner, so long as you have them talking to each other, it will paint the same field on the on the screen, and all of all of my shutoffs, all of their shutoffs will work as as I cross into something that was planted by the other planner, then bam, 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 mm. my rows would go, go off as it crosses the rows there. And so you, you need communication for that too. So we, we're talking somewhat, so this is really about, the, the Starlink deal is really about autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous, not so you can, you know, check your, your Facebook <laughs> while you're out in the field. I mean, or, or even <laughs> no. communicate back home with people back in the, back in your house or something like that. Uh, uh, it's, it, Hopefully, maybe there will be some of that, but no, it's mostly about it's mostly about the equipment communicating with with okay. who it needs to. Um, you know, the I'm running GS three, the Green Star three, 
it and mine does not have any communication. It it receives a satellite signal and knows where it's at, but it's not communicating back to anybody. However, my planner, the the planner controller that I'm using, it does it is Wi-Fi capable and it's not cellular capable, but Wi-Fi. And it's got features in there. I'll hotspot it to my phone out in the field. And if I have an incident report where it crashes or locks up or just acts weird in some way, you know, push the button to make report, send it to send it to the manufacturer right there and just be like, there you go. If, if you if you didn't want this information from me, you shouldn't have given me the ability to do it. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, that was going to be my next question about it, too, is like, is it communicating back with, with the manufacturer and can they, do they respond to it? Have you had any situation where they've had to, where they've been able to respond to what's going on? Um, on crash reports, not so much. We have last year, as we were getting ready to plant, we had issues and yeah, they were responding very quick because my, my planner, hmm was not communicating with the controller for four or five days. And the tech and I were tracing ethernet and swapping routers and modules <laughs> and stuff and nothing was working. And finally, finally after banging our heads on the wall for a week, I mean, the, the there was, a, they were a day away from sending somebody from corporate to come and look at this and mm. figure out what, what mm-hmm. it was. And, we finally we finally figured out which which switch box to go around with the Ethernet and delete and voila it went to working and all was well. <laughs> this, this was the biggest aspect of of, of talking to you that, that became up is that the modern American farmer is as much an IT guy as he right. is a, a guy yeah. you know with dirt under his fingernails. I mean this is you you're talking about running Ethernet and routers and I mean that sounds very familiar to, to someone like me who used to do that <laughs> in an office building. Well yeah and you know it, it a lot of the working on the tech is new to me. I mean until not that long ago, you know, I had a ground drive planner that had chains and mechanical gears and you ch- literally changed sprockets on a transmission to change the population and stuff. We had, we had tech, but you know, it wasn't nearly as involved as this planner has, but it's a new skill set that I have, that I'm having to learn to, to diagnose, even, even if I can't fix it myself, I, I need to be able to get close whenever I'm talking to the tech so that Mm -hmm. he knows what to bring with him. If, if he has to show up. You know, mechanical problems are easy. You, you see a wheel fall off. You're like, oh, look, a wheel fell off. <laughs> <laughs> you lose communication. You're like, hmm, okay, where do we start? Right. So these are switches and modules on the on the device itself? Yes, on, on the, planter. the planter itself. Oh, wow, yeah. excellent. Yeah. Yeah, each row has a, has a module, and there's a couple of switch boxes to bring them all back and talk to the router, and then that router runs just a single Ethernet up to the up to the controller. Interesting. Which is, which is built off of, um, I looked at the back of it the other day. I think it's a Dell, Dell rugged tablet is what mm. it's built off of. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. The, the it, it's updated every year, which will be next in February. So tomorrow mm-hmm. sometime or sometime in February, the, the first year or two, it really did have some overheating issues with the with the laptop or with the tablet. Uh, it seems like they've optimized the software some. And last year, I didn't. I had problems, but I didn't have once a day, whenever the sun's beating down through the glass of this 
the the tractor onto the back of it at, at overheating. So, mm-hmm. huh. yeah. Anyone who keeps their phone on their dash of their car will recognize that in the summer, you know, the overheating yeah. issue. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of overheating, um, what, you know, of course the, one of the biggest issues into our society now and people are talking about is climate change. You know, obviously the climate changes, it just, you know, whatever the causes. Uh, but what are your big concerns about how climate change affects your farm and how you farm um, and, and even, and maybe even down the line from your farm to the consumer? What, are, what, what are your concerns as a farmer? As, as farmers, you know, we're kind of on the front line of a lot of this stuff. And, but I'm not concerned as much about climate change, partly because there's, there are things that we can all do, but there's, it's bigger than one person. And I try not to borrow trouble from the future if I don't have to. (laughs) Good way of putting it. But on the other hand, if there is something that can be done, I'm satisfied that the American farmer will, will end up doing it. You, you, you want to look at, at historical disasters that, you know, agriculture was involved in. You, you go back and you look at the, the Dust Bowl, and mm. the, there were environmental factors, but a lot of factors is, was, you know, the way that everyone was farming there. They, mm-hmm. they weren't doing it intentionally, but the practices, the best practices of the day that they were using turned out to make the make the drought even worse. And, and, you know, the modern conservation movement got started out of that. And, and farmers led the way with that all through the 20th century to the point where, you know, it wasn't, is in the last 10 years, John Deere, which invented the steel moldboard plow, stopped making plows, moldboard plows. It, we, whenever there is a, whenever there's a, an issue like this that comes up, I, I feel we can take care of it if there's something we can do. There's a lot of talk about carbon credits and and trading carbon credits and and what we can do to do that. That's in its infancy right now. I don't know what that's going to look like. Mm. It it may be something. It may be it may be another one of those things that people talk about and then are like, well, no, that's not going to that's not actually going to work. That was one of the things I, I in some of the articles I was reading was this idea that, you know, there's so much farmland in the United States and so much carbon, which is plants. Plants are basically carbon, uh, you know, that you can yeah. lock into 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 agriculture. Basically, you can lock carbon in. Uh, you know, they, they talk about doing that sort of thing, like they, removing CO2 from the atmosphere and locking it into land. Um but like you said, that that technology, we're not quite there yet with the tech, and that's pretty cutting edge and pretty far off, probably at this point. It it it, it some of it is, um, you know, they're talking about using using cover crops and minimum tillage. Everybody's, you know, everybody has at least experimented with cover crops, and there can be less tillage, but it it needs to, you know, we we are at a lot more or a lot less tillage now than we were 20 years ago, 50 years ago, or a hundred years ago. Can I ask for a definition of terms? So, so cover crop and tillage, because <laughs> yes. the audience will want to know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A cover crop is, 
a a crop planted on a field when you're not whenever you're, whenever there is not a uh, a cash crop being grown. So a, a clover or a rye rye grass or tillage radishes, which is just a really big radish that has a <laughs> really long root on it. Um, and what was the other one you asked? Uh, uh, what tillage. Is tillage? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, tillage. Tillage is any mechanical working of the soil. Um, okay. Traditionally, we were talking about the dust bowl back then. You would have plowed the ground probably in the fall, and it would have stayed bare over winter. And then, come spring, you would have pulled a disc harrow or a disc is over it to uh, kind of smooth it out a little bit. And then after you got done with that, you would have hooked onto a cultivator and pulled that across it to finish, finish smoothing it out and making a nice soft seed bed and then plant it into it. Um, you know, nowadays we can plant into last year's stubble um, or standing, standing cover crops or mm. what we still have to use tillage. Nature has a way of, of, you know, moving things around whether despite our best efforts. And so you still have to go out there and, and fix ditches and, and terraces and out tile outlets and, and all of these things that it doesn't stay static and nature is always changing, but, uh, you have to you have to work with it, and so there's 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 a place for some tillage and and a place where you don't have to use it. Yeah, here out up in New England, here the farmers talk about growing rocks. <laughs> they just they, <laughs> they seem to, the, the, the 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 easiest crop to grow is is more rocks in the uh, fields, <laughs> which is why yeah, we have so don't. many rock wall fences through the through forests and everything up here. Uh, I've been up in that area, and there there are a lot. It's not it's very pretty up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We we don't have quite that many rocks, but we do have we do mm-hmm. have places where we do. <laughs> so one of the, the the tech issues that it's sort of a philosophical moral issue is you know back in the seventies there was all this talk about the population bomb you know Paul Ehrlich's book which is based on this idea that population was growing so fast and that we would never be able to produce enough food for the for the population that we would have by 1990 or 2000 um and there's a great ted talk i don't remember i i would link to it but i don't remember who who it was uh where he talked about the reason that never happened is because the technology for increasing yield surpassed the growth of population do, do you think that's sustainable do you, do you have concerns about population growth and feeding all the people no i don't um First off, if you go back to 1900, it was a 189 or 1860s is whenever the USDA first started keeping track of of the corn yield in the United States, and it was pretty flat from from post Civil War up to 1900 at like 25 bushels an acre, which means nothing to most people listening. <laughs> <laughs> Last year's corn crop nationwide average was 177 bushels per acre. Wow! It, it has the the through the use of technology, um, the the corn crop average average per acre yield of the corn crop has gone from 25 in 1900 to 177 last year. Um, 
the record winner for the National Corn Growers Association's yield contest, I believe, was 620 bushels. I would have to look it up. I can, oh, I wow. can find it really. But 620 bushels per acre. Is that easy to do? Obviously not. Or the nationwide <laughs> average would be that. But it it the potential, I don't know what the top yield potential per acre for a corn plant is. And we we're learning how to how to breed better corn and how to and even using GMOs and splicing and all of this. So right now I, I I'm not worried at all. You uh you look at, at soybeans, which is one of the other crops that is one of the three major crops in the United States. You've got wheat, soybeans, and corn. Soybeans um the average yield last year, I believe, was 51 bushels per acre. And the record was set either last year or the year before at 200 and, 200 and some change. Like, less than 210. It was either 201 or 206 bushels per acre. So, the yield potential is there. It's, it's just using modern tools to unlock it. And, and other countries are, are getting even higher yields than the u.s for acre i understand uh um for some for certain crops for for certain probably for certain crops uh yeah probably not corn um brazil brazil i don't know if they have surpassed us in total bushels produced of soybeans they may they may not i mean right now right now everybody like me gets up and checks argentina's weather every morning (laughs) Um, (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> you know that's what that's where the growing season that's where the growing's going on right now and and all of these crops are a world crop and we in order to make decisions on what we plant we have to know what everybody else has to, so if we need to make last minute adjustments mm. in in our ratio of corn to beans or or whatever okay it's interesting. Yeah, th- th- this article that Dom shared was really neat that it talked about the alternative proteins and um, having a vegetarian in my house and trying to solve the protein problem for our household <laughs> has been really interesting. So I was wondering if you if you have any insight. Into that. I know soybeans is, is a part of that. Uh, uh, is there anything else that's coming up? Not that I know of, really. I mean, usually alternative alternative uh, proteins, they're, you're, you're using soybeans. Um, some chickpeas probably too. Mm. Um, but, but as far as I know, the soy protein is really the, where they get a lot of that from. But that could have a big impact eventually. Um, the article was interesting. It was saying that, that a lot of the consumers have pushed back on, you know, impossible meats and the stuff at the direct to consumer, you know, uh, level, but the next level will be putting, making them ingredients in processed foods. You don't need to know that the egg quote unquote in your Duncan Hines cake mix is, you know, protein based egg as opposed to, you know, a uh, one laid by a chicken. And I think, I think it's kind of interesting to think about how, you know, they will, the products, these products will change how we do things. Um, but ne- not necessarily in a yeah. way that is upfront visible to consumers. It, it, it will. I mean, in the food industry, Taste, taste change and, and stuff. I, your meat-based proteins aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Thank uh, God. But, Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a but, steak and you know, if, if it's something that the consumer wants, the consumer always 
get always gets it, you know. Yeah. They're you know, the consumer are the ones buying the product. Uh, right now they've like you said it looks like they've really backed off on the impossible impossible meat and stuff like <clears> that, but you know, it, it it's important especially for, you know, people that have meat allergies and stuff to be able to get protein to them in a in a way that's digestible. So, okay. Um Victor, you had a question that I saw that you put in there about a similar uh, similar area, right? Yeah. So you you mentioned that the consumer kind of is the is the final word, and um, what you what you grow depends on what obviously people are buying, and uh, you know where else they can get it. But do you feel that in the industry as a whole, there's uh, you know any sort of motivation or not necessarily pressure to to change what you're growing to grow mo- more of the alternate uh, proteins or or anything like that. I mean, as far as row crop goes, you know, we're raising corn and soybeans. Um, we have changed, and we don't really raise wheat anymore because we just don't have a market where we're at for wheat. Um, mm. You know, that that's all out west, and and you know, Kansas, Nebraska. Oklahoma, those those drier areas, that's where they raise wheat. Up until 10 years ago, we would have a few hundred acres of wheat every year. And like I said, the local market around here just dried up. Um, but also, you look at, if you look at meat production in general, and cattle in particular, um, yeah, that the, the taste in that change all the time. And you... I'm sure everybody out there has a uh, 1950s animal husbandry book that they can just grab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but pick one of the pick a go on Google and and search for 1950s Hereford or 1950s Angus animal, and you'll see an animal that's probably about you know four foot tall, four <clears throat> foot wide, and four foot long, and just short, stocky, um, and then. Just find a modern a picture of a modern cow. I, every, the, in the last 50 years, everyone's wanted leaner meat and, you know, better cuts and better marbling, better, you know. And that's what that's what the industry's moved to is is that. And the Angus Association has done a really good job of marketing over the years. Um, you know, everybody. Everybody thinks a beef cow is a black-hided, black-haired cow. Um, but it's so much so that your traditional continental breeds have bred a lot of that black collar from the British Angus breed into them. But on the other hand, the consumer wanted lean meat, so you've had to take those continental breeds that were, that were leaner, taller, skinnier animals and and move their genetics over into the, the Angus breed sometime some to you know so yeah the, the things change and we we've traditionally raised scimitar cattle for since the 80s or so so something like that and they're colored animals um usually white with either blonde or strawberry traditionally with either blonde or strawberry spots on them and everything and and now you go to a, you go to an angus show and you've got all blacks and all black baldies i mean uh, a yeah. black baldy is a black animal with a white face interesting 
I found a quick article uh, from the Oklahoma State University on implications of cow size change because I was quickly Googling it. And they, even from like 1993 uh, to 20, say, I think that's like 16 or so on this chart, the average weight has gone from, say, 700 pounds to almost 800 pounds just in the, that 25 year span. Uh, so I could, I can imagine like what you're saying is like they, they're, they're making more dense, <laughs> you know, yeah. Per, yeah. Oh, per, yeah. per square meter, the density of beef is got, has gone up. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Not only has the meat got leaner, but, but, you know, we've, we've selected for inbreeding, we have selected for more efficient animals that, that turn grass and feed into something that we can eat mm. at a, at a more efficient rate. You know, one thing that, uh, one of the areas of technology that is impacting all of us is drones drone more and more drones in in use around us and that's the drones are becoming big on farms i understand uh in part because of labor shortage everybody's every industry is experiencing labor shortages uh but farms apparently especially probably the big corporate ones are experiencing shortages of of uh, labor, uh, but also the more efficient. What do you think of the use of the increasing use of drones on family farms and ranches? I, oh, I, I will see more. We'll see more drone use in the uh, in the future. Um, I, I would argue a bit with it being more efficient. Um, where where we're using drones right now is in chemical application and stuff. And one, you have to have an FAA license. And you can only be flying one at a time, I believe. You can't have a swarm right now mm. because of the size that these drones have to be. And as they're as they're flying, they have a ten minute flight time, and they have to land, ref, refill, and have a battery switched out, and go back. So you're looking at a, a, a drone. Somebody somebody with a drone maybe could spray two three hundred acres a day. Um, mm. You have you have a ground whenever you're having to apply stuff, you have a ground, a ground sprayer come in, you know, they could do a thousand, 1200 oh, wow. acres a yeah. day. Um, or you have a helicopter or airplane and they can, you know, probably do close to that a day too. Um, a lot of helicopter use anymore. Um, you get better, you get better penetration through the canopy with the downdraft of the helicopter. Um, Interesting. but I think they're. I think you're going to see more and more. You're also going to see smaller drones out there for scouting purposes. You can do do uh, near visible light, you know, infrared or or ultraviolet, and see what the plant is doing in those wavelengths, mm. and see where you have problems that that you might have to go out and on foot and 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 scout. Um, I'd shared an article with you and. Mm-hmm. I think I think where we're going to see autonomous things and stuff like that is more in your swarm ground-based robotics. Um, I don't know how soon that is. I, five, ten years, maybe five? I mean, five or ten years is a pretty short amount of time in, in <laughs> the farming world. Where you consider it takes you one a whole year to have a crop. Right. Um, it, it's just a matter of getting getting them trained, the AIs trained for lack of a better word yep. to mm-hmm. go out there, take care of the, take care of the weeds and leave the crops. Um, 
You also have have on on the other side of that. It, it's very important to manage um, chemical resistance in weed mm-hmm. weeds of all sorts, and a mechanical means of. I mean, sometimes that's why tillage is used is to help control weed populations, but a mecha- uh, alternative mechanical method of taking care of weeds, mm. nothing's resistant to iron. Um, <laughs> that was an interesting aspect of this article that you shared. This company, it's a startup called Greenfield Incorporated, and they apparently have these small ground-based rolling uh, autonomous vehicles with lasers that recognize weeds and will burn the weeds, basically, uh, as it goes very rapidly. Um, and uh, and as they say in the article, just what you just said is, you know, you, they don't do weeds can't develop a resistance to lasers, which I think is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and and nobody wants more herbicides. I mean, I, I think in general, herbicides that we have today are fairly safe and, you know, and, and oh, not like the old days. Yeah. And, but fewer herbicides is always better than than more. You know, fewer chemicals is always going to be better both in the marketing, but just in general. And I, and I I like the idea that we could get these, a swarm of a small autonomous ground-based vehicles that could do a lot of this work. Uh, It's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. The products that we're using now are the least persistent and the safest sort of chemical pesticide control that we, that we've had ever up to this point. And, And it just gets better. But I, as someone in the industry, my biggest concern is managing all of this correctly so we don't get resistance and then have, have you know, a problem weed that you just, there's no other way but tillage to get rid of it. Right. Or going out there with a, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> with, with a spade and walking the field. I mean, I've walked fields before. It's no fun. <laughs> we also don't want to end up with the last of us uh, scenario, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, oh, Victor. Hordes of drones with lasers on them. Chasing <laughs> you down either. Lasers against yeah. weed people. I, I, yeah. I see a, a, a very bad B movie on the yeah. horizon. <laughs> Revenge of the Triffids or something. Yeah. Victor, I'll let you ha- have the last question because it's. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a, it's a fun one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, if you could have a second farm and it's anywhere in the world, where would it be and what would you be growing on it? You know, probably, probably in the wheat producing area of Australia. Um, go down there and raise wheat. I mean, you know, they have some of the biggest equipment and the largest fields in, in the world down there. I mean, you, you go on YouTube and, and, and look up. Australian farming and you'll see combines with 60 and 70 foot headers on them and (laughs) and cedars that are 215 foot wide being pulled by two articulated tractors and and stuff like this. And wow, you know, that that would be fun to do for a while. (laughs) I thought for sure you'd say pineapples in Hawaii, but you know, (laughs) I'm not a water person. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, uh, that this is great. I mean, I, I love to, to have this conversation, especially to learn about things that are not in my wheelhouse, but that are vital and important to everything, to all of us. Far, farming and agriculture is vital to every single person in the world. Uh, and so to get your perspective as someone 
whose hand is literally in the soil uh, is is great. And I and I appreciate it. And I thank you uh, for joining us to do that. Um, so uh, at this point, and you'll uh, Matt will stick, stick around with us for, for the rest of the show uh, to join in the conversation. But at this point, I do want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of technology, including Clint C, Mike M, Brett, John M and Robert S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of technology and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So before we get into our headlines, I do have one little uh, bit of technology advice to hand out if you are an iPhone user. Uh, If you have uh, an iPhone and you can update it to iOS 17.3, do so. And then once you have done so, go into your settings. And here's a little tip. My wife didn't realize you could do this. Pull down and from the top and there's a search bar that appears. And then type in stolen device protection and then tap on it and go right to the set, this new setting that's available. Uh, I think it's under passwords and passcodes if you, if you, if you go the hard way. Um, and turn it on. Uh, it is not. It is a new security feature. It is not on by default. I don't know why Apple doesn't put it on by default, but it should be. Every single person should have it on. This goes back to a story we talked about last year where people were having their phones stolen in public after someone shoulder surfs their password, you know, stands over their shoulder, sees them enter the password. They get their phone stolen, and within minutes, they've the, the person will uh, log them out of iCloud, change their passwords, and basically take over their digital life. And you could, and there was nothing they could do about it. Uh, what this does is uh, it requires that to change the password on device, it requires face ID or touch ID, which is new. That's the first time Apple has required that as a primary, as usually the face ID and touch ID is a, is a secondary. But if you enter the, if you enter the password, then it requires a face ID or touch ID in order to change the passcode. And there's a delay of up to an hour to to change to make a couple different changes so if you like changed more than one thing and uh and finally this is only uh operative when you're doing this outside of significant locations there's a feature in your phone where it knows basically this is your home and that's your work you know places where you are all the time um unless you hang out in the local bar like cheers all the time and that has become a significant location uh but <laughs> Some of these features will not be operative in, you know, at home or at work, but will be out and about. So just something to um, to keep in mind. So if you have, and most importantly, not just if people listen to us, I assume you're a techie, but if you put everyone in your life who has an iPhone, do this for them too. <laughs> like make sure everyone <laughs> does this because we need to uh, protect people's data and, and information. So uh, just, just a little uh, PSA there. So uh, let's move on to our headlines. And this first one, I, I, you know what? I've got the perfect <laughs> panel for this today because uh, I got my I got a couple of video gaming guys here. Um, this was an uh, article from visualcapitalist.com. They do a lot of infographic stuff. And uh, they, it's a chart of 50 years of video game revenues from 1970 oh, to 2022. 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my cane out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it's a fascinating thing because it breaks it down by kinds of gaming. So, for example, early on, there are basically one kind of gaming. There were arcade games. 
Uh, then in the early seventies, they st- we started getting console games, and then sometime around the uh, and then uh, beginning of the eighties, PC games, and then about nineteen eighty nine, Nintendo launched the Game Boy, and so on and so forth. And we get mobile around you know the the uh, early two thousands uh, that really takes off, and then VR AR, which is big, but it also shows the the growth of the amount of money. Um, and I think this is all in. 2022 dollars uh that it went from um a billion about a billion dollars in 1971 per year to over two almost 200 billion dollars in 2022 um so what do you guys think of this this is fascinating to look at 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 the history of gaming it's very neat i love that my first year of life was the peak for arcade games (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that's uh that's that was awesome but then it's hilarious because i look at it and like my brother's first year of life is like the lowest point on the whole graph for all of them <laughs> so i was 81 he was 85 that's just kind of like, a, like something dipped there there was a weird came back. crash yeah in the whole market yeah. in 85 um I, I, uh, the chart oversaturation of low quality games crashed the industry mm. Yeah, there's that doesn't surprise me at all. Video <laughs> <and you. laughs> the, uh, yeah, the great video game crash of uh, yeah, you could blame ET, uh, but um, yeah, no, the video game crash of '83 is definitely a interesting historical phenomenon. One of my favorite non SQPN podcasts, and I only have a couple that aren't SQPN podcasts, is uh, called They Create Worlds, uh, with uh, mm-hmm. Alex uh, Smith. And um, he is a, a video game historian, but also trained as a lawyer. So it goes deep into the business and legal aspect of video games, not just video game uh, development. So um, definitely uh, check out They Create Worlds if you're interested in the you know, legal and business aspect of, of the mm. gaming industry. Um, very fascinating. Which is bigger than TV and movie industries mm-hmm. combined. Um, you know, it's, I found it fascinating. I didn't realize steam goes all the way back to 2003. It's 20, 21 Mm -hmm. years old at this point. Uh, it's kind of a wild. I, it's the, the, the really interesting thing about this graph too, is that right now, when you look at it, you, you realize how big mobile gaming is. And, um, as, as a person who's into developing video games, it is very hard to find content about developing about being an indie developer developing video games for the PC or for just a, a sit down playthrough because right. everything is geared towards mobile because it's easy, it's fast, and there's just a huge market for it. And it's easy to extract money out yeah. of mm-hmm. the mobile gamer. Uh, and that's not, a, I'm not, it's not necessarily a pejorative, but it's just that a phone is necessarily already connected to an account. Usually, you know, almost every Android and iPhone has. Right a way of getting, you know, spending money right there on the device. And so it, you know, we got that Fortnite candy crush thing that happened and boom, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of money exchanging hands on that sort of thing. Well, and your microtransactions are almost painless. <laughs> it's exactly too, yeah. too painless. Uh, shall we say it? It's, right. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's interesting that, ha- you know, handhelds with the rise of mobile have almost gone away Although mm-hmm. I, I'm curious what we would say about with, you know, the Steam Deck, the Switch, are those handhelds? Are they consoles? Are they mobile? What are they? They're, they're sort of they're, a new yeah. category on their own. Um, so I'd be curious where they, where they put those here. Um, because, you know, if I buy um, Legend of Zelda 
it was, is that a good example? I'm trying to think of one of something that would be available on a bunch of platforms. But if I buy something for the Switch, that could also be used on PlayStation, you know, five. Is it really, is that a PC game or is that a, I mean, a console game or is that a, you know, so. Uh, That's a good it question, would fit yeah. For the, it would fit for the specific one you buy it for, because if I buy a game for Switch, for example, I don't get to play it on my PC. No, that's uh, true. The Steam Deck's the breaker for that, though, because yeah. if I buy it for Steam, I could do both. So, yeah, I don't I know, it's interesting. the Steam Deck a PC. I mean, it's like a laptop, right. essentially. It's a, so. it's a small laptop with a very small screen, yeah. with a relatively small screen. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love true. to see this. I'd love to see like a category added for dockables or something like that, where you can yeah. do that kind of thing. You can just pull the pull the device off and walk around with it. Well, I'm also curious to see where this chart will look like. You know, what it will look like in ten years, as we mm. have you know the MetaQuest three and the and the Vision Pro and whatever is coming after that. I think the VR AR category is just going to continue to. It's going to do the, what mobile mm. did. I think so. If, especially as we start adding devices like um, some kind of glasses that allow you to interact with your mm-hmm. phone immediately for all of the things that your phone normally does. But then uh, that level of gaming getting added on top of it, that'll be, yep. that'll be really intense. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> the other fascinating aspect of this is apart from handheld and, and arcade, every other category just grows. Like every category has yeah. been growing and some just more than others. And so it's not that mobile replaced PC and console gaming, if anything, it replaced handheld. It just is, is another way for people to spend money on gaming, which is, uh, you know, the fascinating aspect. Um, all right. Our next headline is from Axios, uh, which does this bullet point sort of uh, stories. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. The, uh, the story is about how, uh, introducing Gen Alpha. That's right. We've passed Gen Z. They're old news. Now we're coming up on Gen Alpha. And according to this definition, Gen Alpha uh, is still being born. So the generation currently being born up to about 13. So uh, that that's the, and I think they said like this year, they, they're talking about maybe this year being the last year, but generations need to be a little longer than that. I think like 13, 14 years of, of a generation it should be 20 at least. But in any case, um, Gen Alpha, they call them the, uh, the uh, iPad kids, iPad kids, <laughs> because they yeah. were born the year the iPad was introduced from 10, 2010 till today, um, that they are, uh, uh, the mainly the children of millennials, which is also interesting. Although I, I have a, a Gen Alpha. Uh, in fact, I have two, I suppose, by that, by that definition. Um, I gonna guess Victor, you and Thomas both have hmm. alphas, multiples. Yeah, I got yeah. a couple yeah. zoomers, a couple alphas. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got, then I guess four alphas. Yeah. So, but yeah. it's interesting. Like they look at some of the the, the things. The, the, Thomas, here are you a millennial? Technically, uh, eighty one. I yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I, I think that I makes you you're a millennial. Yeah, right. Exactly. I love to do that called millennial geriatric. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, it, in any case, um, it's interesting. Like the the differences here, like the uh, the the number seventy nine percent of millennial parents and their kids are on social media. Uh, Forty that includes kids above thirteen, obviously, because it would have to. Mm-hmm. Um, the they and so, they, they they talked about the average age that the kids in this generation get a phone is nine, 
which is why doesn't surprise me. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean, the whole concept of generations is, is a marketing tool basically. <laughs> and yeah. you have to read this article. Like it's written by a marketer to people who are other marketers or want to be marketed to. Sure. The first, very first bullet point says, you know, that's 2 billion people. Well, that's probably worldwide. And then it goes yeah. down <clears> to <throat> describe very, you know, Western cultural right, things, right. you know, like the kids who are nine years old have a cell phone. Well, not, not no. all those 2 billion people. Not will have a cell phone by the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, that when you're marketing, you have to come up with something new and, you mm-hmm. know, you know, that's, I think what this, what this is, I mean, and sure. then when, if, if it's a marketing, you could say, yeah, you know, these kids are going to be very, you know, socially conscious, you know, and at some point it's a self-fulfilling proce- prophecy and, you know, but it is, it is what it is. It's really interesting to see, to see the, uh, the, the difference between my kids that are the, uh, the Gen Z and the, and the alphas though, because the Gen Z are very much still in that kind of meme culture where everything is uh, short bursts of funny information. And my alpha kids are already sick of it and they're using it ironically. <laughs> so <laughs> I've they, they, this too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird to watch this happen because I'm like, you're not old enough to be this cynical about this stupid stuff. What are you doing? <laughs> Yes, yes. I've yeah, I've seen some videos of kids the alphas like ridiculing the the millennials and the zoomers as being old and out of date and it's hysterical mm. to watch. Like I don't understand half of what they're either of them are saying, but it's right. still it's pretty, it's, it's pretty funny to watch. But one thing that came up in this in this article that I think is interesting it's true for both alphas and zoomers is how how much the COVID-19 pandemic defined them. Defined mm. it, it it was a it was an, um, um, an event even more so like, you know, try to think back for the, the response to the pandemic to find them. But, but well, they're, they're the pandemic ex- itself did not affect them. But the well, response to the pandemic is right. what defined their them. experience of, of the events yeah. surrounding what happened in 21 and uh, 20 and 21 uh, are really uh, my own kids talk about this, like how, you know, they, they sort of look at their lives as, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic you know this 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 this, the the world before the world after even more so than i do um and and and, you know my kids are homeschooled so they didn't even have the whole schooling Mm -hmm. aspect of it and the change there's a result of that so uh it's it's interesting to 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 see how this it will be interesting especially to see how this affects them going forward i mean in some ways it's not probably not unlike how the kennedy assassination affected boomers you know the mm-hmm. uh you know uh that and the cold war and you know apollo 11 you know that sort of stuff like that affected the way they saw the world and i'm kind of just i'll be curious to see this these generations as they grow up how that affects them yeah it, it depends also to the extent to which they kind of buy into you know large media organizations versus alternative media organizations mm-hmm. i think we're seeing a fracturing along those lines mm-hmm you know, where, where people are, you know, kind of being more balkanized into their alternative media, in which case there might not be many more events that will really define, you know, an entire generation because what's significant and what's, you know, becomes part of their, you know, personality will, will vary from, from group to group and person to person. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. So our, our last headline is a Bloomberg article, this uh, Nobel prize winner cautions on a rush into STEM after ri- the rise of AI. And uh, this is a, 
this Nobel Prize winning labor economist, labor market economist, uh, Christopher Pissarides, um, who says that workers in certain IT jobs risk sowing their own seeds of self-destruction, not dramatic enough, I guess, by advancing <laughs> AI that will eventually take the same jobs in the future. So basically they are, uh, by creating AI, they are, they're destroying their own future, uh, whatever. And that people. Says the social scientist. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that uh, instead of, you know, continuing the rush into STEM fields, people, you know, young people should be encouraged to look at jobs that require more face-to-face skills since AI apparently will not have a face uh, for a while yet. So Thomas, what do you think of this one? <laughs> yeah, I just, I think as a, as a 3d printer nerd, uh, there was, uh, that was always the statement about 3d printers. Eventually 3d printers will be able to print their own 3d printers and then you won't have to worry about that anymore. And that, that hasn't happened. And yeah. it, uh, <laughs> yeah. it won't get there, you know, and it, working closely with data and AI, uh, like I do, it's, there is definitely no concern about the STEM field uh, being around for the, a, a very long time in the future, but very much growing too. Just uh, you can go to find a, find a good subreddit about um, uh, prompt engineering for machine learning and watch what these guys do with the prompt engineering just to, to get the the machine to do something that they want it to do. For example, like, you know, they, they made it so you can't make copyrighted images. So these guys engineer prompts to get around that by tricking the machine learning into thinking or into saying, uh, you know, explain, write a prompt for yourself about this copyrighted item with no copyrighted information in it and then feed it into yourself so that you can produce the image for me and they will get (laughs) copyrighted images right back out of the thing by doing that. Um, So that that's the kind of stuff that it requires a programmer's brain. It requires the the knowledge and the background uh, of tech and having looked at how the code was built in, in a way that you can, figure out how to alter how it works and that's two levels deep it's not that's not outside of stem that's double doubling down on stem and learning further how to how to get into it and it also it 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 forgets that human intuition is still a thing that is not replicable mm-hmm. artificially these ais mm-hmm. are not data from star trek they're not the droids from star wars they are not skynet even they are incapable of intuition. They are just very large buckets of data that process very quickly. Yeah. And so human intuition is still a thing and that that cannot be replicated. Yeah. And I think if anything, you're going to need STEM skills to excel in the kind of, you know, areas of, you know, empathetic and creative skill areas. My son is working on a research project where he's, you know, for psychology, you know, surveys and stuff are coming back in and they had to read the surveys and then, you know, kind of grade them. And of course, you know, being the, uh, you know, lazy zoomer that he is, he thought, Hey, LLMs exist to, to go through this kind of thing. And so (laughs) no computer science background, he figured out how to, how to, you know, get LLMs to assist with the task. You know, he still reviews it because you don't want them to hallucinate or anything, but that's, I think we're going to see a lot more towards that. There is kind of like the, the baseline knowledge of STEM is going to actually go up in order for you to use these tools. It'll be expected that you'll have a generative AI skill set, just like we have a Microsoft Word skill set, right? You know, mm-hmm. in the nineties and two thousands. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, when it comes to careers, 
do whatever's going to make you happy. Like right now, <laughs> don't, don't try to plan your career over what people are saying will happen 30 years from now, because it's, it's, it's never a good uh, strategy. Yeah. Just do, do what you love doing. I just go back and look at news articles from 30 years ago yeah. that were about <laughs> what people's, what jobs we will need in 30 years. And you will see that it's complete nonsense. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So those are our headlines this week. Uh, let's roll along right into our picks of the week. Uh, Victor, what do you have for a pick this week? Yeah. So um, as, as you may know, I do, I do podcast editing. I do audio editing. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, some of our listeners do as well. They're, they have their own podcast or they want to start their own podcast. And one of the, you know, things that you struggle with is, you know, how do you get the voice to sound as clear and professional as possible without, you know, a lot of background noise and, you know, without delving into equalization and compression and all of this stuff. So Isotope has just released a relatively inexpensive piece of software. It's $30. It's a plugin that runs in your audio software called VEA or Voice Enhancement Assistant. And what it is, is it's three sliders or dials that you turn up, you know, the one cleans up your audio, one, you know, balances the EQ and the compression for you, and one adjusts the overall loudness and keeps your loudness consistent throughout the entire, um, you know, recording. And so I've been experimenting with this and I've actually, you know, it's a me, I'm not really a big fan of black box software where I can't see all the stuff that's happening in the background, but I've been using Isotope software since 2002, I think was the first version of Ozone I have. I have their, you know, high-end, you know, pro software, but I've been using this and it's just really nice to just say, okay, you know, this slider, this slider, this slider, and you get a, a pretty good signal out of it without a lot of uh, fiddling around. So if you're interested in starting a podcast or you have a podcast and you have $30 and some knowledge of how to use audio plugins in your audio software, um, this is a great place to start. Victor, I'm 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 actually kind of angry at you that you didn't tell me about this before. <laughs> it just came out, it came out one week. Yeah. It just came out a week ago. Okay. So uh, it has a 10 day, 10 day trial. You can, uh, you can check it out. Yeah. I mean, I use Isotopes RX 10, which is a, a post-processing, but if I could get a really nice, um, you know, a plugin to, to get it on the front end, man, I'll, I'll buy this and I'll get one for everybody on the network. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah I haven't I tried it on recording a live signal. I've used it like in post-production, but I think maybe I will try to use this uh, as I record some of the, Secrets yeah. of Stargate episodes that are coming up. Yeah, it'd be interesting to try because, uh, um, yeah, I yeah, it. I have a workflow, but you know, something anything that makes it easier, and uh, you know, the, there's more and more of these products coming out, so that that's fantastic. Yeah. So, you don't. I love the idea that you don't need to be an audio engineer. I had to learn all this stuff from the ground up. I'm still yeah ten percent of what Victor knows. So uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I love. I, I wish the stuff was around you know, eight years ago when I was, or longer when I was starting to do this. Excellent. Very good. Thomas, what's your pick this week? So I have two, I have one kind of on our list, but um, I, I, I'm avoiding the more controversial one in general, but I have started playing Pal World, uh, which is oh, wow. being widely talked about. Um, I ended up getting a copy for myself and all three of my older kids, and we have a local server that we set up. It was the easiest server setup I have had in any experience with setting up servers in my house. So mm. if you want to set up your own server and you can do that <laughs> kind of thing, it, it's worth it. And the game's a lot of fun. 
So that's that's my game recommendation. And that's as far as I'll go. With that <laughs> one. Um, but as part of that, like in my gaming experience, I was trying, uh, I got a new computer and I tried out a new um, operating system because I'm Linux junkie and I always want to kind of bounce around in what I'm using. Uh, Mint was getting a little stale for me. So I wanted a new experience. I tried Ubuntu uh, Core itself, did not like it, had a really hard time setting a lot of stuff up so i got a derivative that was supposed to be better for media it's called kubuntu k-u-b-u-n-t-u and it is fantastic out of the box all the drivers were ready to go for me it found my hardware uh placed it in ready to go this is my go-to recommendation for daily drivers for uh new linux users 100 percent uh it has just been a fantastic experience all the way down Excellent. Excellent. And uh, as usual, uh, free to use, right? Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yep. Um, that's cool. Very, that's excellent. I, I always, I keep wanting to experiment. I have to, you know, get myself an old, uh, box and, and throw some Linux on there. Cause I, I, yeah, hearing you guys talk about it makes me really want to get into seeing how it works. I've, I've dipped my toe into raspberry pie. Uh, so that's my start. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> then I had the, that DNS problem you tried to help me with, and then I had to wipe out the pie to start from scratch. So I really yeah. learned about how Linux works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, very Linux experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I can't talk too much. My, I, my Mac issues that we were having just as we were recording this. So uh, there's issues. Um, awesome. So. <laughs> My pick is, uh, this is going to be kind of a funny one, uh, the unusual one. Uh, my pick is my washing machine that we bought uh, six months or so ago. Uh, we, we are a family of seven. We do a lot of laundry. And so mm. um, this is like our third washer in, in the last 12 years, whatever. But um, I went out and got, I never, I, would, I never would have done this. I always like to get the the most basic washer, you know, it just, it's the tub yeah. and it turns and it's got all mechanicals. I bought the washer with a Wi-Fi in it. And, and like, <laughs> I know, I know people like all, all the, all the techies are like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Um, well, it was on sale. It was like a really good yeah. sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I wanted a top, a top washer. I, I don't like the front loaders. Um, the big thing about this is it connects to home kit or smart home stuff. It has an app and, this one feature, there was this one feature that really got me. It was that it tells you when it's done and then reminds you 30 minutes later. And my mm-hmm. wife loves that. Happy wife, happy life. She, mm-hmm. In fact, what she wishes is that it had more uh, uh, customizable alarms and notifications. Like, mm-hmm. remind me. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes and an hour. <laughs> like, and then in an hour, we got to rerun it because it's going to be, you know, all, all, all musty. But uh, but she's like, I want more. For some reason, it has all these like these notifications you can get before it's done. It'll be done in 15 minutes. What am I going to go stand by it? Just tell me what it's done. <laughs> like, I don't need to know now it's going to be done in 15 minutes. But in any case, uh, but you can also get notifications when you're, you know, on your phone when you're out of the house or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can set up all kinds of special washing and like special modes and control it all from your phone. Um, one of the things she likes is to be able to tell it to like, she, she, she's a, a night shower, you know, people are morning showers and night showers. She's a night shower. She gets out of the shower, gets into bed and turns on the washer 
now that she's out of the shower, you know, it, it's a running mm-hmm. night. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And it's, it's like, she doesn't have to go to the washer and turn it on. Um, that sort of thing. So, uh, it, and it wasn't super expensive. Like I'm looking at it actually on their uh, website now at seven fifty is what they, on the GE website, but we got it for a lot less. Uh, so there are, there, you can get sales. That's a really good deal. Yeah. Yeah. For, for something with that much tech in it, it's, that's a pretty good deal. Um, so hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it may not be for everyone. And I know some people will look at it and go, yeah, but I, I, I want a washer that's going to last 10 years and something with Wi-Fi in it. I don't, you know, uh, my washer doesn't last for 10 years. That's just that's a, a fact <laughs> of life in, in my household. Um, so, although as kids are getting older and they're moving out, maybe this washer will actually last a little longer. That's, yeah. But uh, in, in any case, that's my uh, pick this week. Uh, Matt, I didn't ask you to p- prepare one ahead of time, but if you had one, you'd be, I'd give you the opportunity. But uh... Yeah, um, if I would pick uh, my Blue Parrot 450 headset. I'd take it with me every day. It's got very good noise canceling. Um, I can be outside in the wind. I can be standing next to a running engine or other loud environments and, and talk on it. Um, doesn't have ear protection, but... You do things just right. You can put your little ear protection in, put that over it, and and still be able to talk to people. Sometimes they'll be like, "Why are you yelling at me?" Well, I'm standing next to an engine running wide open. I'm sorry. I'll back away for a second. But that would be my pick. Awesome. Very good. Uh, yeah, Jobber oh. makes really good headsets. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this they last a really long time. The one that I have, it's four years old, almost five years old. It's been wet. It's been dropped. It's been dropped while wet. You know, <laughs> yeah, very and, little chump. Yeah, and like, like you, you know, if, uh, you're using it in all kinds of environments and weather and that sort of stuff. So it, that speaks oh, well of it. Every, every day for almost four or five years now. Awesome. That is that is a, a high recommendation yeah. for it. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you all for your picks, and that'll do it for us this time. Uh, we'd love to hear from the listeners. Anything that you uh, thought about what. Uh, we discussed today, or uh, if you have other questions for Matt, show up in our Discord and 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 go to the the Secrets of Tech channel, and you can you know ask Matt some questions about farming or ask us about things. We've had some great discussions uh, just today. Someone was asking about how to get started with uh, home automation, like where should we begin, Ooh. which should be a topic we should do on the show sometime. Yes, um, the, how to how to get started, um, and you know things like what should I. Should I be renting my router and my modem from my uh, internet service provider? So uh, show up there. We'll do no, our best to answer you that. Not. You should not. Yeah, we'll do our best to answer the questions and, and give you the leads on where where to go for that. But uh, but for now, uh, you can let you know you can you can comment on the show at sqpn.com slash technology. You can visit our uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash Starquest Media. Send an email to technology at sqpn.com. Or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can find links from our discussion and picks of the week on our show notes on at starquest.fm slash tec242, tech242. Remember to like the Secrets of Technology wherever you find us on social media, like on Facebook, retweet us on Twitter, and uh, leave us comments wherever you, wherever you can. Uh, until next time, Thomas Senorho, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. It's been great. Victor Lambs, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom. And thank you again to our special guest, Matt Clark. Thank you. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of technology on StarQuest. <laughs>